You are listening to episode 5 of the NASA and Silicon Valley podcast series. This week in the news, we have a handful of new updates on the Kepler and Sophia missions. The latest Sophia story looks at how a particular type of organic molecule could offer clues to the building blocks of life. On the Kepler side, we're looking at rotating and dancing stars and how they can help us understand how stars and planets evolved. We'll release audio versions of those stories shortly, so if you're too lazy to go to nasa.gov slash Ames uh, to read the updates for yourself, you can sit back and listen to them on this very podcast. Speaking of Kepler, today's guest is Tom Barclay, Senior Research Scientist and Director of the Kepler K2 Guest Observer Office. We go into the work NASA is doing, looking into our solar system and beyond, and how we can expand the frontiers of knowledge, capability, and opportunity in space. Of course, we also talk a lot about the Kepler mission and the community of scientists sorting through all the data the telescope brings back to Earth. Here is Tom Barkley. Yeah, I, I guess my journey is slightly unusual you know most people I work with are like well when I was four years old I wanted to I looked at the skies and I wanted to be an astronomer and I bought a telescope and that really wasn't (laughs) me I I went to do an undergraduate degree in in physics because I thought physics is kind of cool you to learn about how things work um it's really hard physics is super hard and um I wasn't really into hard things when I was (laughs) doing my undergraduate I was into bars mostly and as one is and i thought <laughs> astronomy that sounds easy and <laughs> and it was i mean it was certainly easier than like <laughs> than quantum physics, physics. <laughs> uh, and and fun and so i started doing more and more astronomy during my undergraduate and and then at the end of it i was like i don't really want to get a real job so i went and did a master's yes and then i went and did a phd and okay. then I did my PhD in, in, in Northern Ireland. Okay. And, and, and Ireland's very famous for being green. It's like the Emerald Isle. Very That's much. because it rains all the time. <laughs> Unlike California. <laughs> and so, yeah. And, and so really when I was looking where to go next, um, I wanted to be sort of doing you know, do a cool job somewhere that's really fun, somewhere that's going to excite me. Um, and also I wanted to be somewhere where it doesn't rain very much. <laughs> nice. And so I bought, I had a map, I printed off a map and I circled places with rainfall and I circled places that didn't rain and I only applied to places that didn't rain so much. <laughs> so not Seattle, yeah, yeah, not that's London. Right. <laughs> so I applied to like Spain, the Canary Islands, Arizona and, <laughs> and California. And, and fortunately, like my number one pick, which would to become to, to NASA, work on the best mission there really? is, uh, panned out. And so everything worked out. Oh, cool. So then how did, did you just like apply to a job or was it like Absolutely. Uh, just literally you just saw it online and you're like, this sounds fun. Yeah. So, so in the field of astronomy and astrophysics, there's a, a job register that lists nice. all the jobs. And, and this one was like, Hey, this is really cool. Cause it's, it, it's not pure science. It's, it's doing uh, work to help the community to help, okay. help science in a, a, a slightly more, uh, general way than, than you doing all the work yourself so that appealed to me or citizen science yeah kind of yeah or, 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 or perhaps more you know serving the community as well as making yourself successful and, and I, I, I that appealed to me um, and so this this job just seems perfect um, so when you came in you, it was for Kepler mm-hmm. it was for the, the job that you're sitting in right now not, not quite I, I, I came in in the more junior position and then kind of worked your way on up yeah people people uh, moved on and I was the 
<laughs> I was there, and so they're like, why don't, like, why don't you do this? <laughs> life tends to work out that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've been very fortunate. I think the best advice anyone ever gave me was um, make your own luck. Like, give yourself Absolutely. opportunities to, to be to, for things to fall into place well, for you. You, you, with the, with a master's degree and a PhD you kind of you get everything set up locked and loaded so mm-hmm. you're just waiting for that opportunity to hit and then you're yeah. just right place right time that's right it all works so it's like yeah. a mix of lucky and making your own luck I'm yeah sure. yeah you know you I think I think all the things that work out you're it's, it's nearly always luck that just happened to be the right time the right place this happened some people have a huge plan but most people it's just it's just a lot of luck involved but I think get people who give themselves opportunities mm-hmm. to for think cool things to happen. Oh uh, wow! Tends, something tends to happen that's cool. And, and so, um, but this is one of the cool things of you know not only you know, we have these big satellites and these instruments up in space, or even you know here mm-hmm. you know looking up at the stars and gathering all this data, but not to just hoard it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But you know, this is the cool part about you know. NASA mm-hmm. as a part of the federal government is like collecting that data and putting it out there and almost kind of crowdsourcing mm-hmm. <laughs> research. We have people doing it as well, but we also open it up to a whole community of people to look at the data. That's right. I, th- I think one of the things I'm really like passionate about, really deeply passionate about is is making the science data that's collected using, you know, literally millions, tens, maybe hundreds of millions of taxpayers' money, making that available to anybody who wants to use it. Um, not not keeping it the domain of, mm-hmm. of a, a select group of scientists who were in the right place at the right time. Uh, and, and, and so the mission I work on now, I think we've done a really nice job of making sure anybody can access that data. And so that has resulted in in people like citizen scientists, people with, yeah. with who do uh, jobs in 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 the in the real world, not in the, uh, the, <laughs> the <laughs> not in this in this, this sort of uh, the world of science, but they 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 go and do real things. The people of them have written, published, peer reviewed wow. academic papers on on our data. Oh wow! And, and so is it is the community that kind of helped build? It, it's a mix of. You know, amateur astronomers, I'm sure academics, probably different research institutions, or international and national, I'd imagine. Yeah, you know, the, the, I mean, of course, most most people working on the data are professional scientists from yeah. one one flavor or another. A mix of, yeah, gov- government labs like, like Ames and, and, and places like that. A lot of people in universities. Uh, and, and, yeah, pl- uh, probably about half of our scientists working on data are overseas. Um I, I, I think, and, and a lot of people are students, um, mm-hmm. both undergraduate and graduate students. Yeah. I, I, more than half of our papers, are like the papers on, on the science, uh, on the science using our data, are written by students, which is, I think, something that I think we're really excited by because, you know, they're. That helps foster and building yeah. future coworkers. Fun, <laughs> yeah, well. and, and and you know. Uh, I think the the Kepler mission, which is where I started, um, what the Kepler's done a really nice nice job of is is they encourage students early on, and then these students now, sort of seven, eight, nine, ten years later, are the professors, and they're huge <laughs> fans of the mission. And uh, you know, as the mission moves along, we have this built-in community who who uses our data, publishes our data, and tells everybody how wonderful what we do is, and that that helps us going forward. Awesome. So going backwards a little bit, I mean, because everybody here, we all know the Kepler mission, know the K2 mission, the follow-up, mm-hmm. kind of the, the, we can go backwards and explain a little bit like what is Kepler mm-hmm. and so for people who are listening who may not know. Yeah, Kepler, I think Kepler's for me the most important mission NASA's done and that's a 
other people would disagree, of course. <laughs> Slightly biased, but, but but still pretty cool. You know, Kepler's um, his job is to find the faction of uh, stars in our galaxy that host habitable or potentially habitable planets. And so Kepler's found thousands of planets, literally thousands of planets. You know, in 1995, we mm-hmm. knew of the planets in our own solar system. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. And then... You know, some skepticism of if there were even exoplanets even existed. That's right. It was extremely skeptical. People just didn't know. Um, And then 1995, the first planet around another star was found. And that was just 20 years ago. And now uh, this this increase and increase. And then Kepler launched in 2009 and found thousands of planets. And really, not only that, found planets that were the size of Earth. um, Teaching us that, that very likely there are many places out there that, that look like our own planet, mm-hmm. or at least superficially. We don't know any anything de- in depth yet, but but superficially look like our own planet. Um, for me, that that's really exciting. Wow. You know, as science moves on, the, every breakthrough tends to teach us how insignificant our own planet is. You know, <laughs> firstly, you know, we know the the, the the Earth orbits around the sun. The sun orbits around the galaxy. There are many suns. Now we know there are many Earths. <laughs> we start off with very high self-esteem <laughs> of us, the sun circling around us, and progressively realize how small and smaller and smaller we are. It's it's you know I, I and I, I I like that. I like the, the it's giving perspective. Absolutely, where we come from. Wow. So so Kepler's this giant telescope. It's mm-hmm. circling around the Earth. Around the sun. Around the sun, okay. Mm-hmm. And it's basically just looking at a patch of sky. Because um, it's funny talking to people outside of NASA as well, where you know they'll see the pictures of Pluto that came in last year, or they'll look at pictures of Mars, and they're like, oh, sweet. So exoplanets, planets around other stars, wh- where's the photos? <laughs> it's like not exactly the same kind of looking. There's different ways to determine whether or not, you know, an exoplanet actually circles around another star. Yeah, the method, the method there are many methods and the method we use is, is we wait for a planet to to orbit its star and it goes round and hope that the the line the plane of the orbit of the planet is lined up with us so that the yeah. planet crosses in front of the star. Cuz it could be above us. We could Absolutely. you know. Yeah. Yeah, so so for every one earth like planet we might find there are 200 others that just don't line up. Mm-hmm. just right yeah uh so it's it's a very low probability to happen and so the fact that we found thousands and these events are very rare tell us that just planets are everywhere wow and it's basically just looking at that star and mm-hmm. staring at it for a long time waiting for that just subtle dip yeah and- we, we we wait we so for an earth you'd see one uh transit one one passage in front of a star uh, per year Mm-hmm. And so our mission lasted for Kepler lasted four years. So we'd have seen four dips of of, of Earth if we've been looking for Earth. And Earth. I and I think this is kind of important as it goes into the community that you're building up because it's not like it's just looking at one star and then moving to another. It's looking at a patch and almost like making a recording, <laughs> and then so after you've done that recording now going back and looking at the tape mm-hmm. and trying to find those those situations yeah i i think that the data we collected is going to be studied for for years decades probably because there's just so much data in there you know they, and actually in some ways this, this is the way that a lot of science is going certainly astronomy is going is is big data mm-hmm. um 
we're we're employ having to deploy a lot of the techniques that are used here in Silicon Valley yeah. in, in 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 you know in the tech world because we're collecting enormous quantities of you data. Have to, you have to store it. You have mm -hmm. to be able to look at it. And yeah, and you need to mine it. Data mining. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a pretty nice path if, for people who want to move into Silicon Valley from from science because they're data scientists very oh. much so. Oh wow, trying to comb through all that data. Mm -hmm. Oh wow, so. Um, so talk a little bit about, you know, there was the original Kepler mission that you worked a lot on looking at a single patch and then things got interesting as they moved into the next phase. So Yeah, in, in 2013, we lost the second of four reaction wheels. So reaction wheels are just um, spinning heavy discs. They, they kind of look a little bit like, like maybe, dumbbells or? almost, you okay. know, if you're on, on weights, these, these things. Okay. And they, they spin around. And so by spinning them at the right speed, you can change the pointing mm. of the spacecraft. You, okay. you can minutely adjust how the spacecraft's pointing. But, you know, we live in a, a universe that has three dimensions. Yes, and absolutely. And with two spinning wheels, you can't control three dimensions. And so we were, we were stuck until uh, a, some of the genius engineers... Because one uh, of those wheels literally stopped working. Two, two of them literally two stopped. Of them. Two, two of the four. So we started with four, one okay. backup. Two of them stopped working. <laughs> and so we, we didn't have a method to accurately control the spacecraft. And so, yeah, so it was just kind of like pointing where just kind of circling around. Exactly. Kind yeah. Um, you know, we, we could hold it loosely, but, but not precise pointing. Okay. Um, and then s engineers, you know, they're, they're <laughs> you come it, up with crazy stuff. It's the funny thing about engineers is they spend, especially working on NASA projects, they spend most of their life being very conservative because we launch very big, expensive missions and, and they have to think of contingencies bad. and they don't want anything to go wrong. But suddenly we had a mission that didn't work and there were basically in no rules. You, if you can find a method to do something interesting, because you get this like multi-million dollar, <laughs> you have this, this this huge telescope. You went through all the effort to put the thing in space, mm -hmm. and then you know it's great for four years, and then these things stop working. It's like, well, we got it up there. What can you do with this? <laughs> yeah, and you know you see the, these engineers who are suddenly it's they're the like creative thinking. This is what I I was trained to do. This is what I <laughs> dreamed of doing, and they're bright eyes, and they get to come up with methods of, of pointing the spacecraft and so okay. the one that uh, the, the one out was was to use two wheels to control uh two axes of the spacecraft okay. so so what we call pitch and yaw okay so if you think of the spacecraft as a you know a, a soda can uh pitch and yaw are the up and down and right left and right um uh, of of the soda can looking out out one direction um, but that left a free axis, and that would be the roll. That would be the the spinning of the soda can in, in your hands yeah. um, uh, around the cir circular side. Um, so how do you control that? Yeah. And the method to control it is, well, the spacecraft has a shape, and it's kind of symmetrical, almost, mm -hmm. if you look at it in, one, one, in that direction. So uh, what's causing the spacecraft to not point accurately? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what, what's making it, it roll? And that's the sun. The sun itself is, is sending out a lot, of, a lot of energy, a lot of particles, a lot mm -hmm. of photons, and mostly it's particles. And, and, and those, we call this the solar wind. Yeah, and this solar wind is trying to push the spacecraft away from away from where it wants to point, but by balancing the spacecraft against this solar wind, okay. the solar pressure, you can kind of keep it in, in in stable pointing. So you have like the two wheels are are they're keeping at least two points, but it yeah. keeps spinning around. But if you get it right in the right way, mm -hmm. you can kind of take advantage of the force that the sun exerts to stabilize. That's right, and that's what you're doing. 
Um, and and so this is this is not entirely stable. So uh, yeah. once we start to sort of roll away from the thing, um, that will start to accelerate. You know, this is okay. an equilibrium, but it's it's not entirely stable. So we can hold this for a few hours, and then it starts to roll away. So we fire a thruster to put us back <laughs> to, to pull where it we back, pull it back, and this is how we go. So so what we do is we point at a, a field for monthly three months, okay. and every six hours or so, we fire a thruster to put us back, and then we slowly roll away, fire a thruster, it puts Hold us back it. to where we want to be. And and this keeps us pointing extremely accurately Oh wow! Uh, for, for a long, long time. And that's huge, because like, even because the original Kepler mission was meant to look at like a patch of sky. Um, I remember talking to someone and saying, it's almost if you hold your hand up into the, in in the sky and like, it's about that, as many stars as your hand would cover up is about the patch of sky of, Mm -hmm. you know, the the original Kepler. But now you're almost looking at an arc. You're like looking at several patches of sky, you could say. That's exactly right. We're, we're, we're we're looking into what we call in in astronomy, the ecliptic plane. This is this, this, um, kind of circle uh, this plane that, that is where all the planets orbit. It's where the you know the Earth goes around the sun. Yeah. It's where Jupiter and Mars and Saturn. All, all these are in the same, same plane. Um, we call it the plane of the solar system. Uh, this just happens to be. This is how we balance things because Kepler also orbits in the, the plane in of the, the plane. solar system, uh, and and so um, we, we 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 look out uh, and, and we can keep pointing it somewhere for 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 this for three months. So uh, we're currently in our tenth of these three-month campaigns. Wow. And so we've looked at 10 times the area that Kepler's, the original mission, was able to look at. Oh, wow. So you, oh, and so are, are we still getting that data? Are we just, con- it's a continual stream of data that, that you're feeding off to the community to then look at and also like NASA scientists also look at. Absolutely. So there's, yeah, lots of NASA scientists and lots of the community all looking at this same data, uh, doing all sorts of different science. Uh, mm-hmm. Searching for exoplanets is, a, is obviously still a key thing that we do. Yeah. Um, but we do all sorts of science, like studying the very youngest stars, study how stars are born, and uh, looking also at galaxies, studying supernova from galaxies. Really, a this huge range of science from from the very youngest to this this very distant. And, and it's it's cool because taking that data and you kind of mix that along with other land telescopes, other instrumentation and you can start cross-checking each other's data or find stuff that you know maybe one mission on its own wouldn't have known about but then like all of them combined mm. kind of find new things yeah actually we, we've just finished this this um experiment uh, it, it finished just a few weeks ago which we called the the k2 microlensing experiment um, microlensing is a, a relatively complex uh, okay. idea but but basically it, 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 the idea is you, you have a background star Okay. And then you have a, a, a star that's much closer to us. Okay. And that passes in front of the background star and acts like a lens. Because the gravity kind of warps that light. Exactly, yeah. So the foreground star, this nearer star, passes across a background star, warps the light coming from the background like- star, and, and focuses it towards us. And so as the, planet, uh, the star passes in front, it, it makes that background star appear brighter for a short amount of time you can kind of see as it goes across kind of warps slightly and then goes on its way that's right now what's exciting is if this star has a planet you wouldn't <gasps> see two bright one brightening you'd see two you'd see a second oh, little peak okay it's caused by a planet so the goal of this experiment was to f- search for microlensing events uh from planets 
Um, and why people have been doing this from the Earth? There have been some wonderful experiments from the Earth, but why do it from Kepler or from the K two mission? Is that Earth sees these events, mm-hmm. the spacecraft sees these events. This line of sight, the angle that Earth and and, and the spacecraft Kepler look at yeah. the events is slightly different, and and because these events, uh, the, these lensing events, are very finely tuned to the angle you look at something at, they look different from from these two different viewpoints Mm -hmm. and so by um, using mathematical models of of what's what the events look like from the two different places you can determine uniquely the the masses of things how much things weigh really okay so usually you get maybe a ratio of the mass of the 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 lens star to the lens planet okay but this you uniquely determine the mass of the planet oh wow can you can it also tell like what type of planet kind of like the rocky or gas planets or is it kind of a, a, a little yeah. bit, but it's it's mostly you, mass here. So you can tell a lot from the mass of, of a planet. You know, by you know something with the mass of Jupiter is probably gassy. Something with the mass of oh, Earth okay. is probably rocky. Most of the things we'd find here are going to be Jupiter-like. Okay. Um, and why this is really bigger target? <laughs> yeah, but this is really exciting. So so what Kepler did? Kepler was really just sensitive to to. Um, inner solar systems or inner planetary systems. Okay. It, it couldn't find anything uh, that would be exterior Further to Earth's out. orbit. It couldn't find a Saturn or Uranus. Or yeah, anything. and it's just simply not sensitive to those. Uh, why why microlensing is great is it's much more sensitive to planets that are, are far from their stars. Okay. Uh, so things like Jupiter, true Jupiters, Microlensing is great at detecting things like Uranus and Neptune, things further out. It can detect. So, so the Kepler mission told us huge amounts of information about close in planets. Microlensing is a great companion to that because it tells us about the outer oh. planetary systems, and we get a real, a true picture of of what do uh, planetary systems orbiting far from our own look mm-hmm. like. So, for the folks who are, are listening, who are like exoplanets sound pretty cool where do they find where can they find most of the information or find a lot of the stuff that you're working on uh, yeah so i mean nasa does a great job of of, of really explaining things there's a, a nasa exploration program exoplanet exploration program run by nasa which which includes huge amounts of resources uh, just to learn about what's going on oh wow cool the, thank you so much for coming around Hey, no worries. It's great to be here. Hey, this is great. I'm, I'm sure we'll have we'll have you back many a times as we go into more details. We haven't even scratched the surface. Yeah, it's it's such an exciting topic. Actually, wh- why I love exoplanets is it's so new. We're, we're, we're such a young science and young field. Yeah. That from month to month there is new discoveries, new information, and and what you might say this month will be stale in two months' time, and and what we thought is almost certainty. Uh-huh. We'd be pl- proved to be completely wrong in just maybe a year or two, and for me, that that that's what science is. It's it's this dynamic, evolving yeah. field that what we know now isn't what we know in the future. So dynamic, fun, and also job security. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It'll always be work for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Until we solve it all. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Well, thanks a lot, Tom. All right, thanks. <laughs>